Welcome back to another episode of the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Mark. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 6, verse 6b, the second half of verse 6, all the way down through 632. And this section, in some ways, begins uh, like a new a new section within the Gospel of Mark that begins to wrestle with the readiness of the twelve for ministry and serving Jesus. There's a lot that happens in chapters 6 through 8 of Mark's Gospel, but that section, Mark 6 through 8, is bookended by two miraculous feeding stories and the response of the twelve. And so we get the 12 sent out for ministry, then the feeding of the 5,000. Then in chapter 8, towards the end of this section, we get the feeding of the 4,000 and Jesus challenging the 12 on whether or not they will see and hear. That's the way this whole big section seems to work. So Mark records early on the feeding of the 5,000 and then tells us, the 12 didn't gain any insight because their heart was hardened. Then at the end of the section in Mark chapter 8, you have the feeding of the 4,000 and they're still not getting it. And Jesus asks them, do you have a hardened heart? And so while there's a lot that happens between Mark 6 through 8, a central theme here is the readiness of the 12 for ministry. Will they get who Jesus is? Or will their heart be hardened? Will they be like the crowds and the unbelieving leaders who have eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear? Or will they actually truly see and hear who Jesus really is? That's this big broad section in Mark chapter 6 through 8. Now, as to the specific story in this snapshot that we're going to look at in uh, 6b through 32, this story sets up this section. It's Jesus sending out the 12 to preach and to do ministry in his name. Recall that in Mark 3, 14 through 15, Jesus appoints the 12 to be with him and to send them out to preach and to cast out demons. Well, they've spent tons of time with him. Now it's time to send them out to preach and to cast out demons, right? To, to begin their training and to deepen their training in the ministry of Jesus. In other words, Jesus's training of the 12 continues now with them expanding his ministry by doing the very things that Jesus does. And their activity is clearly connected to Jesus' ministry in this story. And their activity of preaching and casting out demons and doing miracles, well, that activity leads even Herod, the ruler of the region, to wonder, who is Jesus? Which really is the central question of Mark chapters 1 through 8. So, on the heels of his rejection at Nazareth in the preceding story, and Mark telling us that Jesus was amazed at their unbelief, Mark now continues simply saying, and he, Jesus, was going around the villages teaching. So, he's going around all the villages in Galilee teaching. And verse 7, he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs. So six groups of pairs sent out to various towns, various villages throughout Galilee. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Notice that, that Jesus himself has inherent authority over the spirits. And the unclean spirits, as we've seen, know this. But now Jesus delegates some of that authority 
to the 12. He gives them this authority over the demonic realm, over the unclean spirits. And he gives them some instructions of how he wants them to go about their ministry. Notice what he says, verse 8. And he instructed them that they were to take nothing along for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, don't wear two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. Uh, so he sends them out with the bare essentials, right? Um, wear your sandals, wear your tunic, not an extra one. Take your staff, and but don't take any food, any money bag, any money belt or anything like that. Just go out bare minimum as he sends them out. And in the ancient Near East, um, it was common and expected for visiting travelers to be cared for. Not doing so could result in the traveler's death if they lacked provision. Um, and so the decision for the disciples to go out with just the basics was really to send them out where they would be in need of the hospitality and the help of the villagers. And so find somebody who would welcome you in, go stay in that house. That actually gives you a kind of a base of operations for sharing the message of the kingdom of God in that town. And so that's how Jesus sends the 12 out here in this moment for their ministry. Um, and then he says in verse 11, and any place that doesn't receive you or listen to you. So if you go to a town, no one will welcome you in that town. Or after you're there for a little bit and you preach for a little bit, they completely reject you. Well, as you go out from there, out from that town, shake the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. This action shaking off the dust of your feet, well, that was a symbolic act of renunciation. It was the kind of thing that Jews sometimes would do when they returned back to Israel from traveling in Gentile lands before they would set foot in the land of Israel. They would shake the dust off their feet to say, we're back to clean lands. And so this was a way really of communicating that they have rejected you and your message, so we are renouncing you. It was a symbol, symbolic act of renunciation. And so Jesus sends them out with these instructions. Verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. That's the basic summary of their preaching. Repent, return to God, return to his kingdom that is being formed in and through the Messiah. And they were casting out many demons and they were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Notice that. They're anointing with oil while they do that. We don't have a record at this point of Jesus necessarily anointing with oil, but the the 12, as they go out for their ministry, are anointing people with oil and healing them. And so they're preaching, they're casting out demons, they're healing people. And King Herod heard about it for his name, that is the name of Jesus, for Jesus's name had become well known. And so Herod the king hears about it. Now, we need to be clear about Herod. This is Herod Antipas. This is not Herod the Great. It was Herod the Great who was involved at, at Jesus' birth, who was the one that had the babies in Bethlehem killed, according to uh, that story in uh, the other Gospels. This is one of his sons. Uh, this is Herod Antipas, who's son of Herod the Greek, and he was technically not a king. His title was technically Tetrarch, ruler of a fourth part of a thing. And so he was the ruler over Galilee 
and Perea. Perea is the region uh, east of the Jordan River. And so he was the ruler over that area from 4 BC, which is uh, when Herod the Great died, to 39 AD. And so we're actually getting later in his rule when the ministry of Jesus and the apostles is going on. Well, Herod Antipas hears about um, not only Jesus' ministry, now he hears about uh, the apostles ex extending Jesus' ministry, and he's wondering about it. And he's not the only one. As you continue verse 14, it says, And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And so as they look at the power of Jesus, they're thinking, oh, he must have like resurrection power or something, right? Like, I don't know exactly what they were thinking, but somehow their thought is John the Baptist has risen from the dead. That's why he has these miraculous powers. Others were saying, no, he's Elijah. The, the Elijah that was promised was supposed to come and Elijah had miraculous powers. That's why he has these miraculous powers. And others were saying, he's like a prophet, one of the prophets of old. And so he's a prophet. So there's this mixed response to Jesus. People are trying to figure out who he is. There's all these different ideas. What about Herod? Well, Herod had heard about this, and you have all these responses of people. Herod's response is he goes with the first. He's thinking he's got power because of he's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Look at verse 16. So when Herod, that is Herod Antipas, heard about it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. John, whom I beheaded, has risen. And so uh, Herod's question, who is this? And his response is, well, he must be John the Baptist. That's why he has these powers. Somehow, being risen from the dead, God has given him power or something. Well, at this point now, what Mark does is he gives us a flashback scene. Notice, Herod is saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen from the dead. Well, we didn't know that Herod had beheaded John the Baptist. This is the first mention of it in the Gospel of Mark. And so now Mark gives us a flashback scene to when that happened. So verse 17 and following, we're flashing back in time to how and when John was beheaded by Herod Antipas. Look at verse 17. For Herod himself had sent men and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. All right, we got some uh, history going on and some interpersonal relationship stuff we got to sort out. So we have two Herods mentioned here. We have Herod, that is Herod Antipas, and we have his brother Philip, that is Herod Philip. Both were sons of Herod the Great, but they were sons of Herod the Great by different women. So you got Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, both sons of Herod the Great. We also have a woman named Herodias mentioned here. And Herodias interestingly, is actually a granddaughter of Herod the Great by another one of Herod the Great's son, Aristobulus. So she's sort of like a half-niece to both Herod Antipas and a half-niece to Herod Philip. And even though she's like their half-niece, she was originally married to Herod Philip. That was her first husband. Um, but through a course of uh, various affairs. She leaves Herod Philip and she marries Herod Antipas. That's what's all being described in verse 17 here of Mark chapter 6. And so John the Baptist had actually been calling her out and calling Herod Antipas out 
over the illicit marriage. Look at verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, that is Herod Antipas, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herod Antipas is now married to Herodias and he's stolen her from his half-brother Herod Philip. And John the Baptist at some point in his ministry was calling out Herod Antipas and Herodias over this illicit marriage. Well, Herodias didn't take too kindly to that, verse 19. And Herodias held a grudge against him, that is John the Baptist, and wanted to put him to death, but couldn't do so. So Herodias is angry that uh, John the Baptist is bringing such shame on her and her marriage to Herod Antipas. And so she wants to do away with John the Baptist, but she can't. Why not? Well, because her husband, Herod Antipas, actually stood in the way. Look at verse 20. For Herod... Here's why. Herod was afraid of John. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he had been protecting him. Now, we don't know exactly why Herod was afraid of John. There could have been a variety of reasons. Maybe all these reasons work. Like He he could have had at least enough fear of John the Baptist's holy status that there's a little bit of fear of God mixed in, right? Like he didn't want to incur the wrath of Yahweh. The Herods at least had enough understanding of that and enough kind of Jewish blood flowing through their veins that there's possibilities that he was a little bit of fear of maybe the wrath of God, right? Because of John the Baptist. Uh, There also may be some political fear involved because John the Baptist as a, a holy man was very popular with the people. Um, And so the people could rise up against Herod if he killed John the Baptist. And so whatever the, the reasons for Herod's fear, he was protecting John the Baptist from anybody who wanted to do away with him, including his own wife, Herodias. Um, And not only that, Herod was not only afraid of John, he actually kind of had a conflicted relationship with him. Look at the second half of verse 20. And when he Herod Antipas heard him. That is, when he heard John preach and teach, he was perplexed. Like, he was kind of confused. He was challenged, confused by all that. And yet, he used to enjoy listening to him. So, he has this conflicted relationship. He likes listening to him. He's confused by him. He's afraid and protecting him. He's got this conflicted relationship with John the Baptist. But, the net effect is, he is protecting John, even from Herodias, his own wife. Well, That only lasted so long. Verse 21, an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, held a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading people of Galilee. Now, we don't know exactly where this banquet was held. Um, It mentions the leading people of Galilee, so maybe it was in Galilee, but it could have just as well been in one of his palaces elsewhere. Um, In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, refers to the fact that Herod imprisoned John the Baptist in one of his palaces at Machirus. Now, it's possible that's where this this happened and that the leading people of Galilee just traveled a little distance to this big bash in honor of Herod. Certainly, they would want to be in good standing with the king, and if he's throwing a party, and he's throwing it even a bit of a journey away, they wouldn't have turned him down. And so we don't know where this happened, but in view of what Josephus says about where John the Baptist was in prison, it's possible that that's where it was at, at this palace at Machirus. And so uh, it's Herod's birthday. There's a big banquet, lavish party. All the uppity-ups are there. 
And during this party, the wine flowed freely. Uh, the men laughed and ate and drank lots of wine. And part of the entertainment was the daughter of Herodias coming in for a dance. Look at verse 22. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and her dinner guests. The daughter of Herodias, her name is Salome. And in this culture at this time, and particularly in Greco-Roman feasting culture, dancing at banquets was actually an activity that was reserved for hired female entertainers. And their job was actually to provide sort of artistic and even erotic diversion and entertainment for the male guests at the banquet. So here comes Salome, and she dances. Now, it wouldn't have been appropriate, right, because of the nature of the dancing, for uh, the daughter of the host to, you know, perform this dance. It wouldn't have been considered honor an activity that was for honorable women. But... Salome is probably actually the daughter of Herod Philip and Herodias, and so not necessarily the daughter of Herod Antipas. Uh, and so maybe in his mind, that was good enough, and maybe she was attractive enough. Who knows? And so he was just like, she's going to come in and dance. And she did. And she pleased the guests, and she pleased Herod. And Herod, probably in a moment of loose lips with a little too much wine, here's what Herod said. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. So he swears, he makes an oath, like I'll even give you half my, and these are the hyperbolic statements, right? Up to half my kingdom, but I'll give you whatever you want. Well, Salome goes out to her mom and says, what shall I ask for? Look at verse 24. She went out and said to her mother. So her mother's nearby, uh, possibly in a side banquet hall. This was very common where there was a banquet hall for the men. And then there was a side banquet hall, perhaps for the women. And so maybe that's where Herodias is at. And so Salome goes out to her mother and says, what shall I ask for? And immediately she, she saw this is her moment. This is the moment she's been waiting for. And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Verse 25, immediately Salome came in a hurry to the king in front of his guests and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. And so uh, Antipas did not want to do this. He had been protecting John the Baptist. He had sort of this mixed relationship with John the Baptist. And he didn't want to do this, but he didn't want to be dishonored and suffer public shame in front of all the leading people of his territories. And so he had to go through with it. And so verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. Now, that's a fairly gruesome scene when you stop and think about what just happened here, right? But in this moment, um, John is beheaded. Um, and this is the demise of John the Baptist. This is how it went down in the midst of a, a birthday bash, a stag party for a bunch of guys who are drunk. And uh, as a result of an erotic dance by a young girl, this is what led to the end of John the Baptist. And verse 29, when John's disciples heard about this, they came 
and carried away his body and laid it in a tomb. And that's the end of the flashback. Now, how long before Jesus sent out the apostles did this happen? We don't know. But at some point prior, Herod had killed John. And now, as Jesus' ministry continues to expand, and even continues to expand through his own apostles, Herod is beginning to fear that perhaps God raised John the Baptist from the dead. And that's why there's these miraculous powers that work in Jesus and in those associated with him. Well, the ministry of the apostles now comes to an end, and verse 30 tells us that the apostles gathered back together with Jesus. So they had gone, and they had done their traveling, and they visited various towns, and at an appointed point and an appointed time, they regathered with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. So they come in, they report back in, they debrief with Jesus, right, and they, they talk about their ministry, and Jesus said to them in verse 31, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a little while. For there were many people coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. And so they went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. Notice that Jesus himself, we've seen, has sought times away from people regularly, while Jesus here is teaching his apostles how important that is. They've had a busy stretch of ministry. They've done their own uh, traveling and preaching. And now as they've returned, there's more people still gathering around. Ministry is overwhelming. And so Jesus is helping them learn the importance of getting away uh, and taking some breaks and resting for a little while. Now, it doesn't work out as planned. We'll see that in the next snapshot. Um, they try to get away. The people see it, right, follows and leads to the feeding of the 5,000. Nevertheless, I think it's important to realize that a Jesus-like approach to ministry includes a rhythm of work and withdrawal, work and rest. And that's what we see Jesus teaching the 12 here when they return back from their ministry travels. Now, before we leave this section, let me just offer a few reflections. Here, here's some of my thoughts. I find it interesting that Mark intertwines the story about the sending out of the 12 with the death of John the Baptist, right? Like here you get the death of John the Baptist right in the middle of Jesus beginning to send the 12 out on ministry missions. Mark didn't put this story about the death of John the Baptist where it fit chrono chronologically in the ministry of Jesus. Instead, he puts it here as a flashback scene. And it makes you wonder why. Uh, and I think, as I reflect on it, one of the reasons likely has to do with the implied lesson that serving God's kingdom often finds itself at odds with the kingdoms of this world. And that may actually be why Mark chooses to refer to Antipas as king, even though that technically wasn't his title. In fact, it was a title Antipas wanted and yet had been turned down from the Roman emperor for. Um, and what we see, I think, in this applied lesson is that uh, serving God's kingdom often leads to opposition, rejection, and conflict at various times and in various ways. And the original audience of Mark's gospel were experiencing just that, that opposition, that hostility, even some persecution in the city of Rome. Well, the story of John the Baptist and his death uh, 
really provides a vivid reminder that that opposition and persecution is nothing new and it's not unexpected. It even happened to someone like John the Baptist uh, when he encountered opposition from uh, people with power and influence. And so as Jesus expands his training of the 12, Mark shows us that serving in Christ's kingdom doesn't mean earthly glory. Also, the framing of the, the story of Herod's banquet with the ministry of the Twelve also provides another important and interesting contrast. On one hand, you have Herod and his banquet and all the ruling people. Here's how the kings and the kingdoms of this world operate. Lust, power, revenge, manipulation, killing. That's how the kingdoms of this world operate. But the kingdom of Jesus? Well, the kingdom of Jesus operates with humility and compassion by healing the hurting and caring for the needy. And that's where this story goes next, is caring for the needy.